Hi guys, this is Ian here. Uh, go and do us a favour and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're getting this podcast. Uh, this episode's an absolute belter uh, with Aidan Martin, the author of Euphoric Recall. Um, really good chat about addictions, his book, his next book he's got coming out and a lot of other stuff in between. Um, at, the, at the end there's a bit where we didn't know we were recording but we thought we'd leave it in because it was pretty funny. Um, apart from that, enjoy the show and if you enjoy it, leave us a wee review on iTunes or wherever else you get this. Cheers. Back at the, we're not live, we're recording, um, back on the Pringle Ontarium Take On Reality podcast. Today we've got Aidan Martin, the author of Euphoric Recall. We've got the book sitting there. We do have the book. It is. It's sitting there. We should probably get the book up. Show it off. Yes. Show it off. Yeah, man. It's a beautiful picture of uh, a drawing of Aidan. Yeah, we've done the illustrations. So, the camera there, Euphoric Recall by Aidan Martin. I've just finished it. It's uh, quite a heart-wrenching tale, but um, honestly beautiful if you like your books. Uh, or if you don't, if you just want to read a story about addiction and loss and triumph. Then, uh, yeah, and resilience, probably above anything, I think you should give this a read. Um, Aidan, how have you... How's the book been getting on? Um, I've seen on kind of social media, it looks like you're... It seems to be doing better than you expected maybe <laughs> yeah I mean the context I kind of use is that my publisher are a small independent publisher based in London they've only been around for two years themselves I'm a complete unknown first time author the working class guy living in a housing scheme the front cover that you were just talking about you know my best pal done that he grew up in the same housing scheme as me and he's still living there He's an unknown illustrator, so we've all just came at this as people that have nobody's really heard of before. No big marketing behind us, you know, no agents involved. Just a small independent publisher and, and two guys that work together, and it's just took off. It's it's unreal. It's catapulted me into the political sphere at the moment as well, which was totally unexpected. I must be madness because yeah. writing the book in itself must have been a mad process. And then, you know what? We'll, we'll start with that, man. So, for, so you've obviously knew, wrote a book and had a book published. So you know the full process here. But for people who have like, oh, you know, how many times you've been at a gaff or something? Like, I've got an idea for a book, mate. Like, I've got an idea for a book. <laughs> for all those wonderful gaff people, um, what was the process like in writing the book for having the idea to it getting published? Just, you know, briefly. So in the beginning, it was... There wasn't a lot of pressure because I had no expectation to publish it anyway. Um, but when I started writing it, I started putting it into chapters because I thought, well, I want it to run like a proper <clears throat> book. And then I started believing in the idea that it could get published. And so, and the, the God's honest truth, I didn't know when I was writing it that it was a memoir. I had to Google what it was I was writing and I found out that's a memoir when you're writing your own story and Took a buzz you're not a celebrity. <laughs> Um, I didn't know that when it's in its raw form that it was called a manuscript so I just thought I've got a book here it's not it's a manuscript until someone actually makes it into a book uh-huh. and then <clears throat> I didn't know you had to pitch it to people and that to even contact a big publisher you have to get yourself an agent and before that you have to pitch it to an agent and you also have to find out what agents 
have like what kind of genres they're interested in and all that and so it was a whole learning process and there was about at least a hundred times that I was like holy shit man like this is just too big it's, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this mm-hmm. um, and then it was a case of Google a lot of trial and error pitching it to agents nine times out of ten you don't hear back and that's not because they're being rude it's because they're inundated with they get so pitches much. they probably get thousands a week mm. and so you need to try and catch their attention um, some of them got back with nice helpful advice some of them got back and said like you've got no chance in hell basically <laughs> and they've, they probably thought they were doing me a favour by saying that and mm. they don't want to give anybody false hope um, I also paid for a, a literary review from a professional in the literary world and she gave it a bad review (laughs) (laughs) you paid for that you paid for a bad review it cost 400 quid for the bad review (laughs) most comedians don't need uh, need to pay for a bad review (laughs) yeah yeah. you get plenty of them I'm sure so you said there's at least 100 times when you doubted it and a lot of times when the process seemed unachievable what kept you going in the times what was your like northern star when everything was looking really grim my mum yeah not, not to sound too cheesy but my mum every day just kept saying to me she believed in it she she believed in me being a writer she said that before I got heavy into a, a drug abuse lifestyle that I wanted to be a journalist of all things and then you know I got into the alcohol and the cocaine and forgot all about that dream mm-hmm. um and so she believed in it and she believed in the story as well and like not to sound airy fairy but I genuinely believe I've got a higher power that guides my life and that's how I'm in recovery and I got this feeling in the beginning to write the book and I just kept thinking I'm either mental <laughs> or that feeling came to me for a reason mm-hmm. and then maybe a bit of both <laughs> do you know mm-hmm. what I mean and like here's an example Conor McGregor there's a video of him when he's just a young teenager and he's got like flicks on his face and he's just a, a nobody and he's saying in that video I'm going to be a UFC champion and the interviewer's like really? and he's like no without a doubt I'm going to be a UFC champion and obviously he's went and done it and, and he said that you have to be a little bit insane mm-hmm. you know with, with your belief in your craft and I kept thinking that I kept thinking no no this is this is going to get published man and so between that kind of outlandish belief system and a belief in a higher power and my mother who just kept believing in me just kept going with it until I found my publisher it's beautiful man that, that, with that in mind I think Pringle Ontario live at the Hydro 2022 live at Scotland's <laughs> number one podcast I keep saying it Aiden I'll say it till it's true not, I'm not even getting an episode out yet and I'm like we are the number one right. you know what you need to do right you have to write it down like it's already happened Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm reading so, a, a book that, nice. was, that was written in 1960 and it's uh, it's called Psycho-Cybernetics and it was written by like this plastic surgeon who he'd like so sometimes he would like uh, fix people's faces but they would still act the way they used to because their self-image had been improved so he like started researching self-image and what that meant and because it was written in 1960 this was way before the secret and visualisation and positive thinking and any of that stuff so a lot of the terms he uses is like he describes the brain as like an electric computer oh no that's just because he's get he's getting made reference points but one of the biggest takeaways he's got is like it's the end goal if you set the end goal as if it's in existence now everything else will work around about it but you just need to set that end goal as happening currently does that sound about right for the so, kind of process it's the same thing man it's the same thing uh, something else i had done before i got offered a book contract and i've still got it on my wall i wrote down i am a public speaker on addictions I wrote that down as if it was factual as if it was already happened and at that point nobody was asking me for my opinion mm-hmm. and and now I'm talking to 
all the politicians and schools and prisons and I'm in the paper talking about the drug theft crisis about addiction yeah so, so it was yeah. the record uh, the daily record this week was that how did that yeah, on, on Saturday there yeah. I, I mean they they must have saw something on Twitter Twitter is like the place for politics and Facebook's for fun I guess that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've learned and uh, so Twitter's where I have a bit more political debate mm-hmm. and a journalist saw some of my conversations and contacted me and asked if I'd speak about the book and I said of course they phoned me on Friday we spoke for 40 minutes it was a great conversation you know you get a good feeling I've had journalists contact me before and I had really bad vibes off them and I've not spoke to them or I've said to them that I'm not interested Mm -hmm. but this journalist was really cool she was really down to earth she seemed to be wanting to do it for the right reasons and then we spoke for 40 minutes and she said oh well we'll get back to you it'll likely it'll go in the paper soon and then I woke up on Saturday morning and somebody tagged me in a post and said that you're in the paper <laughs> didn't even know what was going on on Saturday wow ah, nice <clears throat> um, that, I guess that leads us on to like how important has the response been and if the response hadn't has been as positive as it had been when you would have been completing the book and getting it published was that enough and then the response was one was the response was like a beautiful extra or was it that like because you were so content with it and because you'd published something that you were proud of you feel like that response just backed that up do you know what? I'm not even going to lie I wanted the book to do well I wanted I, yeah. yeah I wanted I wanted to be a writer and an author and a public speaker for the rest of my life but I'm also a recovering addict and in no way did I expect it to play as big a role as it's playing in the debate but I wanted it to have a place in the conversation because addiction takes many forms and I think my addictions maybe didn't fit into the stereotypes and I was a bit of a chameleon with my addiction I could fit into certain environments and not be noticed as an addict and so I was hoping that my book would stand out on its own and give other people a voice and I already know that that's been achieved even before before the media stuff before I got asked to speak to politicians and that just by people contacting me and saying I understand my son better or I understand myself better or now I understand why my partner was the way they were or so stuff like that it's, it's already it's, I've already achieved what I'd hoped to achieve mm-hmm. Excellent so you've, you've been talking to a lot of politicians recently about the drug deaths crisis um, do you want to go into that a wee bit at all? Yeah so we had an event a week ago today actually called Who Cares If They Die They're Only Junkies mm-hmm. and the reason it's been titled that on purpose because the stigma tends to be uh, they're just junkies and they make bad choices in life and they're wasters and so who cares if they die and we've done this event on the eve of the latest figures coming out and so you know I had a bit of imposter syndrome because you've got people who work in the field for a long time or they're quite high up in these organisations that deal with substance abuse and addiction and there was other people like Loki was there as well and he's someone that's inspired me a lot and so there's all these different speakers but um, I made a wee deal with myself before it and I was like you know what I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and sound academic or I'm not gonna go away and research the latest figures that I can throw around that sound good I'm just going to be myself and talk about my experience and if there's anything that comes out with what I say that fits in with the politics that are current then, then that's fine mm-hmm. and I just done that I just spoke about my own experience 
my own knowledge that I've got internally without trying to sound smart and the response was, was really good and I think I played a small role along with all these other people and, and raising awareness and letting the right people hear about it. Mm-hmm. When you say raising awareness, what exactly is the, the overall mission? What are you trying to raise awareness for? What changes do you think are essential and uh, time sensitive that you are trying to work towards creating in this country? <laughs> People are dying in record numbers in Scotland. Yeah, um, fucking miles ahead of any other country as well. In Europe, it's crazy. I, I, saw, figures, it's, I saw the graph. And it's been grouping up and up for years. I mean, this year, well, Aidan probably knows a bit more about it than me, but this year, the... That the, gov- the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon have come out and said something needs to be done about it but these figures have been rising at the same rate for the whole time they've been in power mm. um, so what do you think would be the solution? I think it's, it's multifaceted so mm. there's all sorts of intertwining politics we've got the UK Drug Policy the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 in my, excuse me, in my opinion that needs scrapped or heavily amended because it criminalises drug use and drug users and it treats it like a crime run and a health problem now that's one side of the story in Scotland there are still things we can be doing we've been cutting our ADP budgets for the last 12 years I think they've been cut by 55% I think that's the, the accurate figure um, a couple, there was an audit in 2009 where the, the government advised itself basically to invest more in services and you know, not to make cuts. And then within 10 years, they just ignored their own audit. And then 2019, it came out and reported, okay, massive fucking failures, man. We've mm-hmm. cut everything in sight. Everything's been cut to the bare bone. Third sector organisations are cut to the basics. You know, there's been one or two things that have come out, like they've been distributing the locks on, which is a good thing, but you can't cut all the services and throw a bit in the locks on out and expect yeah. the problem to be solved. And I think the reason for the talk last Monday was, you know, I've, I voted SNP um, most of my life. I've voted for Scottish independence. So I'm not like an anti-SNP or anti-Scottish government yeah, I've person. I've that as well. Because I, I put up a, a post about this on Facebook and immediately got like people trying to question it because and it was SNP supporters but I don't, I don't have an issue with SNP either but I think people need to hold their government to account even if you did vote for them you still need to hold them to account mm-hmm. and I think a lot of SNP supporters especially their core supporters don't like think that's acceptable it's just at all costs they have to look great mm-hmm. and it's all about the feelings of the UK government they just completely ignore the feelings of their own government mm-hmm. like this, this is why I was. This is why we done this talk last mm. week because our own government. We've got. We've had devolved health here for twenty one years. We, we are in control of how we police things. We might not have the drug policy here, but we can control how we police what happens. So rather than putting someone in the criminal justice system or arresting them for low level drug use, we can divert them away. There are things we can do. Safe consumption rooms. There are ways that we can allow them to happen in here. So it's like they've been relying on fallacies and lazy arguments to say, no, this drug policy, Westminster is the big bad evil. We can't do anything. But And like SNP supporters, who I was one of them, would say things like, oh, you know, austerity measures for the last 10 years, but we've had the same austerity measures as England and Wales, but our drug deaths are three and a half times higher than England and Wales. And we've just had a spike of HIV in Glasgow, which is the worst spike in the UK in the last 30 years. So there's a lot more to it than just those. I'm not saying austerity measures and the um, Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. I'm not saying those things aren't 
part of the problem. Mm. But to simply say that bad government down south are to blame and we are not to blame, mm-hmm. it's 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 delusional. Yeah. It's people in denial. And what surprised me so much is that you know I remember being full on doing the marches with SNP supporters and me voting SAP and voting for independence and we hated the fact that Tory voters were so deluded mm-hmm. and now I've seen the same thing happen I've seen like yeah. there was somebody posted on my Facebook the other day and was like well it's a choice to take drugs and I'm like wow you sound like a Tory brother <laughs> yeah I mean I because mean, it's a choice but it's also affected by your environment and um yeah, like I wanted to ask you something about that actually. Like, do you think um, that obviously some people, obviously if a lot of people try drugs. Probably most young people try drugs, um, and some people end up getting going down a path of addiction. And like yourself, you were probably on a path of addiction from the age of like ten, but didn't realise you were till probably a few years ago. I don't know, but ten years. I don't know exactly when. Um, yeah. Do you think the do you think anybody has got the potential to become an addict or is it or or is it all environmental? Um I don't know how I'm trying to word this. Do you mean like is it pre do you think it's predetermined by the environment or do you think anybody has the potential to become addicted? Well, what what I'll say is addiction doesn't discriminate. Addiction can happen to anyone. But with that being said, the the figures of people who are suffering and dying in addiction are very much in disadvantaged areas. Mm-hmm. So there's there's it's heavily concentrated in impoverished areas or people who don't have a lot. And I think that's because there's less hope and aspirations and opportunities in certain areas, much more likelihood to fall into a lifestyle. And addiction becomes a problem when it's clustered and people are all in this problem together and, and it becomes yeah and it becomes normalized and the chances of getting out of that become less and less I mean it's not people in middle class streets that are dying in record numbers if it was this would have been sorted out a long time ago yeah. um, I feel like also if you're if, sorry I just cut you off there but I feel like if you're, um, if you're if you're also well off then you've got recovery available to you like beyond the um, like just going to meetings you can get like actual rehab which if you're if you don't have any money like there's very little chance of you actually getting that um if you don't yeah if you can't pay for it you know that's a great point like so these these figures i'm about to quote come from other people that have that are working in the field and they're doctors and specialists in addiction and you can google it and you'll find these figures anyway in scotland anyone with a serious addiction problem less than 40 percent of people are able to get access to treatment you know and as far as rehab beds I think the number is we have 365 rehab beds in Scotland and a hundred or over a hundred of those are allocated to people from our countries so as far as for who in this country needs them it's it's minute it's minimal Mm. and one of the examples I give and this is not me picking on celebrities or picking on people with money because everyone deserves the same chance Mm. no matter what background they come from but I look at uh, Ant from Ant and Dick and I use this example a lot is that he had and I love those guys and I love him and I'm glad he's well I'm glad he's in recovery but when he had his issues with addiction he was able to say you know what 
I'm going to take a year off my job and I'm going to put myself into the best rehab centre that there is and I'll, I'll just get a therapist and all the rest of it and, and thank God as well thank God as mm. well I mean I would never wish it on anybody what I mean is if we Jimmy down the road had that situation and let's say we, we Jimmy's working as many hours as he can get to feed his family he can't go to his boss and say listen gaffer I'm taking a year off I'm going to get well <laughs> um, I'm just going to put myself in the best rehab in the country yeah. with my my wage it's yeah. just not possible my partner's going to take care from me I'll be, I'll be back yeah. <laughs> so people in disadvantaged communities don't have access to it and if they go to the NHS and let's say mental health or suicide or some severe problems part of their reliance on substances or they go to the NHS and say I need to see someone cool one year and a half waiting list for you and then they could die within that year and a half an overdose or suicide or whatever and there are there are no services that are cut to the bare bone and this is what it comes back to me that that falls on the Scottish government surely who have had devolved powers of health for 21 years and it surprises me greatly that so many people that have went down with the yellow and black flags and their pride you know they're so proud to be in for, for equality, mm-hmm. for, for equal rights, and we're like so extreme left wing. But when someone points the finger at the Scottish government, those, um, you know, those, I don't even know how, how I would word it, mm-hmm. those morals and values change mm-hmm. because yeah. they became like, very defensive about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people um, think they can't hold a party they support to account. That's the whole fucking point of democracy. Like, even if, like, say, I've, I voted for, like, Labour last time when it was a UK election. I voted for the SNP before, but as well, I tend to think about the candidates and the policies and stuff. But, like, but you're allowed to fucking you're allowed to hold them to account and still vote for them and still be a supporter or even a member. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to, otherwise they'll just keep believing their own shit. Maybe the metaphor of like a football team, like you support that football team. Yeah, rega- people treat it like sports. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's not re- supposed to regardless, be yeah. You know I mean? Blame the manager. Blame the <laughs> blame the weather. Blame everything you can, but don't dare blame the team. Yeah. 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 Cool. I don't know anything yeah. about football or politics, man. But I do know about therapy, man. So I was wanting to ask you, we're talking about uh, Aunt uh, saying like you go like a really good therapist and stuff. Um, and can you talk about about your journey into recovery and how important the process of therapy was in that, if at all? Very, very important. And you know, I was extremely lucky at different times in my life. Actually, very, very lucky. So <clears throat> when I was in my heavily my using. I was working for an organization, Sky Television, and, you know, my brother died and my mum worked for the company and I think they were very lenient and they let me keep my job and I was still getting my wage and I was getting plenty of time off and I had private well, health care. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, now that you see that you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, that's why you're so angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so they got me a guy for the they got me a guy for the priory and um I would say that he kept me alive. He was he was a Polish psychologist, he was one of the best people I've ever met in my life and you know this is totally off off subject, but years later when there was a lot of uh, anti immigrant mentality in Scotland and people were attacking not all people, but some people were attacking Eastern Europeans and blah blah blah. I was thinking, man, that Polish that Polish psychologist saved my life, man. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Thank thank God he came in this country because he saved my fucking life. Mm. Um, anyway, that's me on a tangent. So that was important. And then when I was in college, I got access to free therapy as part of college. And then at uni, again, I got access to free therapy. So those things were just extremely fortunate. They were all free. They were all available through whatever institution I was a part of. And I was very, very lucky. After that, 
I've paid for therapy as well, which is depending on what job you hold and what your financial responsibilities are. It's not cheap, mm-hmm. you know, but I've seen it as an investment in myself. Yeah, um, like personal training or something like that, isn't it? If you can afford it, then it's mm-hmm. even if you're not like as severe as sort of symptoms Aiden had back in the day, mm-hmm. like it's still probably a good thing for people to do if they're just especially in like times like this if they're just struggling with like fucking having to be locked in your house and all that kind of thing you know and let me just throw this in before we let you go and, and there's a lot of organisations such as uh, The Spark which is a company in Glasgow which right now is offering uh, free free therapy okay. um, just because I know a lot of people are struggling with mental health so I think a lot of charities have been given kind of government grants maybe no sure what I'm talking about but I know that definitely the Spark for One is an organisation that you can like phone a helpline and then they can kind of gauge it towards uh, therapy and they can give you free therapy and free support. And I think it's only 68 sessions or something, but yeah. it's still a good time to get started. But aye, so you were saying uh, free unit yeah. and college, free unit, uh, free unit, free yeah. therapy and college, free therapy and uni, and then... And then I paid for some. And then the, the therapy I'm doing right now came through a specialist charity that deals with a certain kind of trauma and it took me it was a two year waiting list and I eventually got my first session in February and then the week after Covid hit so the the therapy had to be delayed and we just started it again a couple of weeks ago and we're doing it online now it's something that we can do online so it's not it's not widely available I went to the NHS as well but like everybody else to go there I got put on a waiting list and I've never had anything come from that mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people are on waiting lists mm-hmm. um, have you ever been to therapy Terry? I love therapy man yeah. I love therapy um, as I was getting questions later on uh, sex addiction for you man but um, yeah no I'd 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 struggled with a, a real kind of sense I think that in the early stages of working out that you've got an addiction to something and that kind of denial and acceptance process that goes back and forth of ah I'm alright oh no wait I've got a real problem here ah no I think I'll be alright oh no wait I'm going to ruin my life so kind of gone back and forth between that and I I went to a lot of kind of like groups like recovery groups mm-hmm. I felt like the amount of time that was so like when when you're in like a, a, an SA or an AA I feel like it was it's lovely to have that support and identification for so many people but it feels like the process is so long like yeah you can walk these steps but it might take you a year it might take you three years and that that stressed me out because it was mm-hmm. like I don't know if I've got three years to slowly walk through this but alternatively going to therapy it's one on one and you get a full hour to explore what you're going through so I found that was some of the most helpful shit I've ever done yeah. I went to therapy it all goes back to my dad boosting <laughs> every time I go back boosting. every time I go back with a new problem I'm like I think I've got a new problem and they're like are you gutted because your dad left I'm like, I think I might be with us I think I might be with us um, but yeah no so um, where do I go with that aye so no I think so, therapy's great but then the other thing was it gave me a false sense of security because I'd mm-hmm. go into therapy do a few sessions and go that's me I'm sorted not an addict mm-hmm. anymore and then a couple of months later the same shit would creep up on me and I'd be like fuck I'm back here again so <laughs> in terms of prolonged recovery what's your advice on that or what was your experience with that and that kind of starting and going right fuck this is it it's time to I was going to say get jiggy but that's way too enthusiastic for recovery <laughs> it's time to, it's time to get serious yeah. so I mean I think the first thing as I would say is that recovery is very individual um, it really depends on the person and, and their experiences but for, for me what works for me is recovery meetings mm-hmm. the very thing you said about doing a 12-step program and all that 
I understand that the the length of time that that takes could be a negative, but for me, actually, as a positive because I've done I've done it both ways now. Mm-hmm. I've done it where I've tried to skyrocket through, and that's something fixed, mm-hmm. and I'm right back to it again. Mm-hmm. But when I've taken the time and I've just trusted the process and, and followed it. It, it works for me and mm-hmm. it's not so much even just about the 12 steps has been important to my life but mm-hmm. it's about going to meetings and maintaining some form of relationship with our people who are in recovery mm-hmm. and maintaining it one day at a time that's the substance abuse stuff because you can for me I'm abstinent so mm-hmm. I don't touch a substance mm-hmm. it comes down to sexual addiction or any other kind of addiction some people choose to work out what their limits are mm-hmm and what they can do and I went to SA one time and it wasn't for me and it's not mm-hmm. to say it wouldn't work for other people it just didn't feel right for me but what what did stand out to me was they had this thing where they had an inner circle mm-hmm. and everything they'd done within the inner circle was alright and if they went out with the inner circle that's when they knew they were self-harming and mm-hmm. they were feeding on their addiction and I thought that was a very smart way of doing it mm-hmm. I've heard that people do it with food as well so mm-hmm. like Overeaters Anonymous because you can't go abstinent on food or, or sex I mean you, you could try with sex I suppose but you can't go abstinent on food so mm-hmm. they have to work out what's your addiction and what's healthy whereas with substances for me I'm abstinent it's mm-hmm. straightforward mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was that process like it gone for being somebody who had been using for an extent periods and kind of regularly and like it fitting into like the DNA of your life like that was just part of who you were making that transition into being completely abstinent what did it feel like what was the what was some of the stuff you came up against that you didn't expect to come up against and I guess again the same question for LL what was the thing that helped you get through in the darkest times it was hard I'm not going to lie it wasn't I, my story is not one of guy who was fucked guy goes to meetings and guy turns his life around <laughs> that would have been straightforward mm-hmm. it wasn't it was dipping in and out a lot and getting a few weeks clean and then going back out and because when I first went to the cover I was in my mid-twenties so I had the whole battle where I'm, t- I'm too young to be absent and I kind of go the rest of my life and the way I looked at it was all wrong I was looking at like if I was giving up drugs and drink that it was a loss mm-hmm. what I realise now is that it was a gain because that stuff's been replaced with so many other things mm-hmm. that I would never have went to uni and wrote a book and all that if I was still banging Charlie the weekends with the boys you know what I mean That's I'd have just been in the kitchen for 12 hours telling someone I was going to date one day you know what I mean <laughs> I've got an idea <laughs> kitchen I've got an idea for a book i got an idea for a book <laughs> <laughs> you know I'll fucking read the whole thing your pals would be wasted and they'd be like I fucking believe in this idea man you got it there <laughs> what do you, so I think what I was trying to get on, at earlier on actually um, so when when do you think it becomes like an addiction because I know loads of people that like that do cocaine all the time mm-hmm. but like still have like yourself had high functioning jobs but I mean there probably does come a point where it's like it's really is it, is it when it's impacting on other parts of your life do you think it becomes an addiction well for me I believe it was always an addiction but it was mm-hmm. an addiction an, an addiction I could manage for a long time right. but then it's got tentacles and the tentacles start going out further and further and further and then more and more consequences happen mm-hmm. like for example again if someone's say somebody's rich let's say they're a millionaire and they don't lose their house 
and they don't have any bills creeping up on them and they don't have tick decks or none of that for a long time they might not even realise they've got a problem mm-hmm. and that's just a, that's just a theory for me in my mid-twenties I mean I was 21 and I was in a house that I almost had nothing like no possessions left and we had me and my pal were living together and we were both using addicts together and we were you know eating food out of the bin because we had no food Um, we had tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt we had letters piled up at the front door because we were too scared to move them and open them because we knew each one of them was something to do about own money we had dealers attacking us I was getting my head split open my nose split open getting jumped looking looking through the blinds looking over my shoulder all the time you know it was getting rapidly worse and self-harming suicidal but still my number one priority still was how am I going to get another gram Mm. Uh, I think in my mid 20s I didn't know I was an addict but I started to think oh shit there's a problem man yeah yeah, yeah. it definitely sounds like it but was it a long period of time before you realised that it was just a time like we'll get we'll get past it we'll get through it we'll be alright yeah it's it's amazing how much longevity you can get with denial Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. amazing I don't have any problems Um, so having your uh, so that's one of my favourite parts of the book having your trauma driven sex addiction confronted by a dominatrix must have been surreal <laughs> that was and you know what when I, when, I, when I wrote that in the book I'm like no one's going to believe that this is real but it really happened and, can you uh, recap the story for anybody who's not read the book alright so I'm in Vancouver I'd been there for a couple of days and I'd already had my phone full of dealers numbers and other drug users and I'd met I met people on the first night that dealt serious fucking hardcore cocaine and I was coked out my face strongest cocaine I've ever had in my entire life I was coked out my face also a sex addict so and by I'll talk a lot in my book about being addicted to degradation so going to say a dominatrix was the sort of thing I would want to do and then I think you know, my friend had gave me an iPhone. It's the first iPhone I ever had because my, my friend, I was staying with him in Canada. And I don't know how I found this person, whether it was online or whatever, mm-hmm. but there was this dominatrix in Vancouver and I remember seeing her in some porns. And then um, at this point, you know, my, I'd, my parents had helped me save up money to go there. So in my first two days, I was quite flush. I had a bit of money on me, you know, which is not days. common, not common for a using addict. And this was, mm-hmm. this wasn't someone who was like a vulnerable sex worker. This was someone who was a real pro mm-hmm. who was doing it as a life choice and was at the top of our game. And I, <clears throat> I went, arranged to go and see her and stuff and had the money, even though it was quite a lot of money. Can't remember how much now, but it was like hundreds of Canadian dollars. And then, I've gone to this really fancy fucking skyscraper building. Not the kind I've ever been in before. I grew up in Ladywell. We didn't have their fucking buildings there at all. <laughs> and I'm going in and I'm going up through all these different levels of security to get up. And she told me what codes to put in at what level and all that. Even the left, you have to put a code in the left to go up the left and stuff. And so I've gone to her apartment and I've gone in. And she's took one fucking look at me, man. And she's been like, what the fuck? And she sat me down. And we had what I can only describe as like a consultation that you have before a session. So it was like um, a sit down to discuss what your needs and wants were before it. Like making sure everybody was safe, you know what I mean? She would do what you wanted to do, but making sure it was all done safe. But in that conversation, man, she was just like, I swear to God, she was like, you 
must be traumatised. And she asked me if I'd ever heard of the phrase emotional malaise. And I'd never heard that phrase in my entire life. Never, never. And she, and I swear to God, she said to me, she goes, look up emotional malaise. She says, it wouldn't surprise me if you've had issues in your life with abandonment and rejection and that you, you feel hurt because of a parent. And I'm like, fucking, she just gave me a whole psychology lesson about my life in five minutes. And she wouldn't do the session with me and she wouldn't take my money off me. And she described what she said was that she would get usually rich men and these men were coming just to have a bit of kink and a bit of fun, which was fine but every now and then she would attract people like me who really wanted to be hurt mm-hmm. who were I'd gone past the point of doing this for fun it was literally self-harming mm-hmm. through using someone else to self-harm and then so yeah she spoke to me about all that explained it all and then I was just wandering about fucking Vancouver coked off my tits still had the coke horn still had my money went back to the blues bar that I'd been in and I had all this stuff in my head about fucking holy shit man I just had psychoanalysis there yeah, from a woman that kicks bars for a living. So. Yeah, <laughs> the real kicking the butt. I told you, it always goes back to your parents, man. Even a, even even non-therapists are like, ah, you gutted because your parents. You're like, oh, oh god, oh. that's bad. I'm actually going to look up emotional malaise, man. I'm interested. I've never heard that term in my life. I, I remember as well. She said she was studying sexual psychology. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, because of the obviously the, the clientele she had, so she was knowledgeable about what she was doing. She wasn't just some lassie with a whip and leather fucking clothes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. She knew what she was doing. Must have been some change going through Livingston to Vancouver. Vancouver's like one of these cities that's like seen as one of the more uh, one of the happiest places, one of the like most beautiful places, like just a really exciting city, and it's surrounded by like the Rocky Mountains. That must have been a fucking culture shock for somebody coming through Ladywell. <laughs> You know, it was so surreal because it was made up of so many different variables. So there was a part of Vancouver called East Hastings and there was all these homeless people and, and drug users. And when I say homeless, I don't mean people that were staying at their palace houses. I mean, they were homeless mm-hmm. and they had a homeless community and it was cordoned off with cones and they were just in this community outside living and then a stone's throw a literal stone's throw away you've got skyscraper buildings that are fucking millions of pounds and and then round the corner from there you've got really liberal parts of Vancouver like um, I think it was called Pink City and everything everything's pink because it was it was to be an area to raise awareness that it was okay to be gay or bi or trans and so they had pink benches and pink lampposts and everything was pink and it was beautiful man and it was like well so you've got millionaires here and you've got homeless folk here and then you've got this really liberal open-minded part of Vancouver here and then there's a blues bar here where I'm going to go and score my coke and then there's a guy in a BMX who deals for the Hells Angels and <laughs> and then you can get a fucking ferry and go and go to Vancouver Island and it was just bizarre and it was the whole place I describe it in the book as looking like what New York looked like on TV that I've never been to New York but that's what it, it made me feel like I was like holy shit this is everything's big and noisy and vibrant and colourful and there's all these different smells and there was accordion buses which looked fucking bizarre to me and I was it was certainly an high up there yeah that's mad. Did you like it eh? <laughs> 
I love Vancouver, yeah. man. I love Canada. The people there are just so nice, man. They're amazing people. Obviously, Vancouver being like a, a massive city, you had all different types of person mm-hmm. like me, like me walking about off my fucking tits, fucking for Scotland. But Canada, everyone I met there was just fucking amazing. Even there was these two guys in the blues bar who I ended up scoring drugs off of. They were look. I had all this money I was flashing about. They could have easily set me up, but they warned me. They're like, listen, man, you need to be careful with your money. You'll get fucking jumped around here. Mm-hmm. And they just they looked out for me. Sorted straight away. Lovely Canadian yeah. friendliness. Yeah, my, my girlfriend's Canadian. We're going to go there this summer. To, I don't think it's Vancouver, but it's another part of the country, but we're, we're going to go there. <laughs> nice. and, uh, Do a podcast with them. Yeah, well, man, I, um, You should, man. to your life from the ranch. Yeah, it's like pink city. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I looked up Malays and it says, if you have a sense of malaise, you may not feel quite right, but you may be hard-pressed to put your fingers on exactly what's bothering you. It's not a condition, but a set of symptoms linked to some other problem when you're in the grip of it you might have fatigue pain and a lack of interest in your usual activities well if that doesn't describe like most of the cunts that I know <laughs> big malaise never even heard it I thought it was like molasses which I believe is like an American potato but no this is much more serious um, have you got any any more of the more fun enjoyable stories about um, early sort of drug use getting into taking eckies and, and coke use and all that kind of thing right so I mean there's, lo- there's loads and loads of what and there's, there's probably loads that I'll never tell again because you know we live in cancel culture now and somebody will come along and cancel me if I tell yeah, the stories but speak to the government and stuff don't be like saying cocaine's fantastic <laughs> well, that, yeah. Yeah. just watch yourself Aiden we can cut it if you want it but yeah, we, if you've got any funny stories we would love to hear them for our listeners mm-hmm. <laughs> right the one one, listen, it's, not, it's, nothing, it's nothing outrageous it just kind of sums up me and my friend Colin who lived together and it is He's consented to his name being in the book, so he's I'm sure he's no bored of it with on this story. But I guess yeah, I it's not it's not too wild, but it's one that makes me laugh every time I think about it. So like this lassie came round and the lassie really fancied his pal. So it's just me, him and his pal, and this lassie comes around and she's got a big clunky speed and she wants to go and get into the pile and we've said to her I'll just leave the speed there and she's like don't fucking touch the speed <laughs> We're not going to touch it. Just leave it on the table, though. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) just you know, leave it on the table. All will be well. And she went away, and obviously, we as soon as she went into the room with a guy and they're doing their thing, me and Colin looked at each other and like, let's get a wee bit of that speed, man. So we took a little bit of it, and then after that, it's like, ah, let's just take a bit more, man. And we're getting fucking lively and all that. And anyway, long story short, by the time she came back through, we had uh, the DJ Tiesto version of Pirates of the Caribbean playing, and we'd fucking (laughs) held up all these chairs, and we took all the sharp knives for the fucking kitchen, and we're sword fighting on top of the chairs, man. (laughs) We'd fucking we'd taken all the speed, eh, all that, man. And she get. And she's like, what happened to the speed and we're sword fighting with the music on the like, fucking I've never forgotten it, man, because it was like, what what an idiot? Who who leaves their speed to two guys that just say leave your speed there? Especially yeah. if somebody asks for the speed. Especially when it's Aiden. I mean, I wouldn't Well, we're transitioning into mad stories, man. What happened to you and all the wrestlers? We were talking about this just before the podcast right, went right. on, man. It was, it was, so <laughs> this was and I have to state here WWE done this out of the 
kindness of the hearts because it wasn't a PR stunt. They never got any, nothing came out of it for them back in the day. It was before social media and all that. What's we never? Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. It was in the book. Yeah, it's in the book. So oh, uh, maybe skip this part if you're going to read the book and haven't yet, but um, it's uh, a really good story. So. Yeah, so as a as a spoiler, but so my little brother was very, very ill with cancer and it was <clears throat> incurable. And he was a huge wrestling fan. We all were. We all mm-hmm. grew up with it. And he loved Shawn Michaels the most. That's fair. And That's a good choice. Yeah, he loved Shawn Michaels. And they were coming to Ingolston, but it was it was all sold out. And my parents um, wrote to them and said, you know, can we get tickets somehow? Like, we'll pay whatever we need to pay to get them. Doesn't matter where we are. He just wants to see... Shawn Michaels fighting live one time in his life. That's his bucket list. Top of the bucket list is to see him wrestle once. And they sent us back a box with DVDs and signed posters and toys and all that. And we thought, well, you know, it's a lovely gesture, a lovely consolation prize because obviously we're too late. Mm-hmm. And then we got tickets in the post, four tickets for free um, to go and see the event live and we were like oh my god you know his dreams come true he's going to get to see Shawn Michaels wrestle so me and my big brother and my little brother who was obviously the one that was very ill and my little brother's best friend all went together and we arrived dead early and we're feeding on the vibe and and, and bear in mind my younger brother's extremely poorly he's got tubes up his nose he's got a bandana on because the tumor's going at one of his eyes Uh, sorry he's got an eye patch on and he's got a bandana on his head because he's uh, he's lost his hair and stuff and he's very skinny and he's very gone he's very poorly but the adrenaline of the occasions just got him really going and we've turned up there for us we've got our merchandise and all that and we're going in and we realised that our tickets are front row and we're right next to the ring and so we're like holy shit man like we're, we're fucking front row you're going to get to see Shawn Michaels so close now and my little brother's his name's Declan and he was buzzing Declan's so excited about it and we called him DJ so we're like, DJ was so buzzing and, and then there was a guy sitting there and he had a lanyard on he was an American guy I was like, oh, are you DJ? And, and he's like, um, he's like, oh, somebody wants to meet you backstage. And I'm like, holy shit, man, like, what the fuck's going on? And they took the photos backstage. And it was like, the only way I can describe it is there was these four curtain things, like, you know, when somebody fucking passes out in the middle of the city centre and they get these makeshift curtains and put them in them. Mm-hmm. It was like a big, massive one of those. And it was like a square and it was black curtains. And they took us through and there was all these seats there and they sat us down. And we're like, well, something's happening. They've took us backstage and we're like, what's going to happen? And then Triple H walked in and we're like, whoa. And now he was my favourite and my big brother's favourite and obviously big DX fans and all that. And, and he was fucking huge and his head was the size of a lion, man. Mm-hmm. And he come in and he sits down and he's talking to us and he, he puts his arm in my little brother. And he's like, oh, he starts describing how one of his nephews is called Declan. And when he heard about it, he says, I had to do something. And he's like, as soon as I heard you were coming, I had to make sure that your dream came true. He says, I heard you're a Shawn Michaels fan. And then fucking Shawn Michaels came in. And it was like, all of us were just like kids, man. All four of us, man. We, we even forgot we were there for Declan. The four of us were just like, ah, it's fucking hell, man. And then Shawn Michaels just spent 10 minutes talking to him, stuck his arm around him, was talking away. And, and then... Other wrestlers must have found out because we had like Edge and Christian and Chris Jericho and Ric Flair and Batista before he became a movie star and everything. And um, we had some of the other wrestlers that weren't as well known as well that came in and guys like Shelton Benjamin and uh, William Regal Kane. 
all of those man and at, at the time it was when they were first doing Raw and Smackdown so it was one of the rosters so we, we didn't meet people like Undertaker or Stone Cold or The Rock but mm. I mean the ones that we met was just like wow it was unbelievable and my little brother's dream had been just to see Shawn Michaels at a live event and it, even if we were in the back fucking row that had been enough for him mm. but they put us in the front row let us meet him and all our wrestlers gave us more merchandise for free put us back in the front row and we watched the whole event and during the, the event as well when Shawn Michaels and Triple H were fighting they were like making gestures to my little brother and like doing all the DX stuff to him and all <laughs> like, that man it. Was, they were like suck it you were like yes, on, yes on the turnbuckle like this man and <laughs> just they, they made them feel like a fucking hero for a night Jesus. you know what I mean that's incredible that's tearing me up man that's unreal yeah, he didn't have long left and like I say this was before social media. They didn't put that anywhere. They didn't say, look what we've done, blah, mm. blah, blah. It wasn't like a make-a-wish thing or mm. that. They just done it because my parents wrote to them and they got wind of it and they decided we're going to fucking make this an amazing night for this wee kid. Amazing, man. And they've never, ever, ever done anything anywhere. I know they'd probably do this all over the world for years and years, but to us, it was the biggest thing we'd experienced in that sense. Mm. And so they never put it anywhere or nothing. And I thought, I need to put that in the book, man. What they've done for him was fucking amazing. That's that's, that's an incredible story, man. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's the beauty of wrestling, man. Fuck it. I I knew I'd get wrestling on this podcast somehow, man. We'll get wrestling on soon. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know shit about wrestling, but I do. uh, I found that story, like, when I was reading it, especially because it's after a big build, big build up about your wee brother and stuff and it's uh, when it gets to that point I was honestly man I was letting bin bits um, yeah. but so people definitely um, read this book man it's, it's fucking amazing um, thank Aiden, you I saw uh, you're, you're uh, studying social work at the moment that must be I don't know why you would want to do that man it like, looks like the most difficult fucking job the most thankless task in the world man why are you doing that <laughs> I don't know anymore man <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hats off to you, like, for doing it. It's just, like, to me, that just... Because we work with... Like, I'm an advocate. I work with social workers sometimes, uh, mental health officers and stuff, and it just... Especially children and families ones, man, it just looks fucking brutal. Like, um, like day-to-day, and they've got, like, just such a big, massive caseload and all that stuff. Fair play to you, but do you think you're going to continue to do that, or are you hoping you'll be able to go into the the writing and then the public speaking and then just have the social work as an education thing rather than your actual career, or do you think you'll do it as a job? Well... The reason I done it in the first place was to do more specialist work with addicts because I felt like mm-hmm. I worked for a lot of great first sector organisations, but it was always on short term contracts and the work I was doing was always very limited and it was the nature of the job, you know, you're you're working with one hand tied behind your back. And I thought, all right, I'll do social work, I'll get permanent job somewhere, hopefully work in an addiction type setting and I'll be able to have a good career and a job that means something to me. Mm-hmm. then all the book stuff happened and I've realised in the last two and a half months I've made more difference for addicts than I've ever done in any job yeah. by telling my story mm-hmm. so I am more than halfway through it now I'm going to see it out it's not going to hurt me having a master's degree in social work no, of if I can make it useful and whether it's for career wise or whether it's just I'm more knowledgeable about stuff and it's going to help me as an author help me understand what people go through better I don't know I'll, I'll see it out yeah. and I'll, I won't rule out where it takes me but there are very minimal amounts of uh, social work jobs that interest me um, I only want to do something if it involves me making a difference for the positive I don't want to work for the state and be part of the system that 
penalises someone that's trapped in addiction. I want to be mm. on the other side of it. I want to be helping addicts. So we'll see where it goes, man. Mm-hmm. Um, just to probably finish off, and um, unless you've got any more questions, I got I got one more. Uh, and then I've got one to finish it, so we can go into that. Cool, I got one, and we can't wait. I want uh, try. I want possibly. I try something here, and if it doesn't work, just having a stroke. I'm, like, I'm, th- I'm thinking about Shawn Michaels, man. I'm gone. He's like, I probably touched these leather chaps, man. The fuck, I always wanted to play. Well, it looked amazing, man. Like sweet chin at the heart. Um, all right, right. So we can try this, and if it doesn't work, we can cut it out, right? But so, as you were saying at the start, man, you're just a normal guy, housing scheme that had a goal and something that you wanted to accomplish. Uh, but there'll be people that are listening to that that don't believe you. There'll be people that'll be like, nah, Aiden's special. Because you've done it and you've came out the other side, they're like, nah, Aiden must have had something special about him that's drove him to that. Imagine there's young Gary, right? And he's in Postal Park right now and he's got a big pile of letters by the door and he's got fuck all possessions and he's got a story that he wants to tell. He's got something that he wants to do. He wants to make a difference in this world, but he doesn't even know where to start. What would you say to Gary as like a bullet-pointed list of <coughs> Gary, here's how you go for para to... I didn't have anything that rhymed with that. Start on your own show. That's fucking bitch. This is how you go for para to start on your own show. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, you don't need to have a bit in rhyming. This isn't a rap. Band. I know. I know. What advice would you have for somebody who wanted to uh, make the similar kind of difference that you've made in the world? That's what I should have said. Why so, <laughs> what I would say is, it's not an overnight job. So, if, if someone had came to me when I was in the fucking depths of hell and said, "Right, go away, be an offer," I'd be like, "Right, I need to get back on the drugs quick because that sounds scary as fuck, man." <laughs> you have to. For me. Job number one was dealing with the, the problem. And the problem for me, everything that was falling apart around me was falling apart because I was stuck in a substance abuse lifestyle. So dealing with the problem was first. Then after that, it was just about taking positive risks. You know, every positive risk I've taken that I felt afraid of, that I felt like I was going to fail at, has led to something else. So examples being I volunteered for victim support volunteered in criminal trials and I remember being terrified thinking how am I going to support someone through a murder trial like a family member of a victim or how am I going to support a rape victim I've, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to support someone through that um, a domestic abuse victim that kind of stuff but it wasn't about being a specialist at anything it was just about putting yourself out there and trying to be the best version of yourself you could be so the volunteering was a big part of building myself up getting educated was the real turning point for me mm-hmm. getting clean first volunteering but getting educated because I learned things about social mobility and class inequalities things I'd gone through and people I knew had gone through and I didn't even know what those terms meant mm-hmm. so even those things I'm describing there this is way before going to uni or, or becoming an offer even those things would have sounded terrifying to me who was stuck in that cottage mm-hmm. with that kind of lifestyle so <clears throat> dealing with the problem first then start taking positive risks because every little one I did led to something else I went to college and done a very basic startup course to start with and if someone had said to me you're going to go and get HNC that had terrified me mm-hmm. all I could do was get through that first class mm-hmm. get through that first day get through that first week and then it led to something else so I don't think there's a you can go from A to Z just like this I think you need to deal with whatever the biggest problem is in your life 
focus on that and then start taking small steps, start taking small risks because there was a lot of those small steps eventually led to me saying, you know what, I'm going to try to write a book. And then from starting that to where I'm at now is a two and a half year process as well. And if someone said at the beginning, it's going to take you two years to get there. That mm. negative, he didn't mind me being like, ah, oh, fuck that. Negative. You know what I mean? I like things now. Mm, yeah. I want it yesterday. It's not about that, man. It's really about taking the small steps forward. Deal with whatever the major problem is in your life and then start taking positive risks. And if you have like a dream, any kind of dream, I'm not going to go into Martin Luther King here, don't worry. <laughs> if you've got a, like a dream, um, Fuck, I, fuck, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> <laughs> that was originally how Martin's speech went as well, but they edited it. They edited it. No, no, no. Like, I, remember it. It. I remember it. I remember it. I remember it. I, fr- I, I threw myself off by talking about Martin Luther King. Yeah, it's, it's back to um, what Conor McGregor said. And the real I know Martin he's Luther done King. things he probably regrets staying or, or that people don't condone, and, but he's done some amazing things too. And he came from nothing as well. And I think just having that insane belief and do you know why I say that right because I didn't grow up in poverty and I came from a good family but I came from a tough working class council estate and where I grew up kids didn't grow up with any big ideas or big visions or big goals and and so it was much easier to believe in an inferiority complex to believe in failure was much more realistic than to believe in in Scotland especially man like people just Ah, I don't know I don't know if it's if it's a case in every like sort of sector of Scottish society but there is especially in the west of Scotland there's just I know you're from more central but it's um, Mm -hmm. people just like to put themselves down constantly yeah fuck it it's a cultural thing but we also we live in times where everything's instant we want it all right now man mm-hmm. but the, the, the point I'm getting back to is when Conor McGregor said you have to have an insane belief in whatever it is your idea is to the point where other people think you're fucking nuts mm-hmm. because I remember talking about writing a book and all that and I remember people being nah. I remember folk joking saying well we've all got one in us and I'm like hey. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the sort of shit people say <laughs> and so you have to like you have to really believe it man yeah and you have to believe beyond to the point where other people think you're mental mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. and then and then when you fucking done it then people are going to ask you, oh, fuck, how did you do that? Number one podcast. Number one podcast in Scotland. Battle Life. Yes. No, that's great, man. That's fantastic. What an answer. Thank you. See, um, just to round off, um, about earlier on this year, you let me read the first chapter of your next book, Where the Fuck is Phil? Um, How's that one going? I'm halfway through it. Are you? Fucking right, man. Uh, I'm halfway through it. If it wasn't for all the other book stuff I'm doing the now and, and uni and having a job and having two kids that they're probably finished it by now because I know I know the end I know how all the twists are going to go I know all the plot twists I, I know all the characters that are coming in and, and whatever's going to happen I know all I've got all written down in dribs and drabs and I've got the first six chapters done to almost published fucking standard mm-hmm. um, and because I've gone through an editing process now with the first book mm-hmm. I'm much sharper at making sure this is in a, a really good way before it goes to a publisher and mm-hmm. I, um, so yeah I'm halfway through it I'm, I'm kind of nervous about getting anyone to proofread it because 
there's so many twists that I'm really proud of <laughs> that yeah. I don't want I don't want them to be spoiled so fucking jar of bees bro hey, I'm, I'm keen to read more of it um, <laughs> I really enjoyed what you sent me last time um, do you want to what's, uh, the, what's the book about for him that's, that's not aware of it <laughs> so it's about masculinity basically right it's it's about a certain time period and <laughs> it's about a certain time period in the early 2000s and lads didn't you know the lads I grew up with in West Slovene we didn't know what our identity was all we knew was fucking trance gigs and eckies and cocaine and you pull bars and you fight and violence and all that so it's really about that and I think what I'm trying to get at is I'm telling a story of lad culture but all the, the lads in it don't know that they're in a lad culture yet they don't know that that's what they're a part of. So someone who's maybe a radical feminist might read this and think, these horrible bastards. But the point I'm trying to get at is... I read it and it was really relatable. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell the story of what we've, we went through. Yeah. And because it's, because it's a fact, I'm based on people I grew up with. But because it's a fiction, I can make it a bit more outlandish and I can mm-hmm. play, play around with the character. But every single character is based on someone I grew up with or someone I knew. And it's just a bit, it's just magnified versions of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole point of it is going to be by the end of it, I'm hoping that it can be like social commentary for this is what lad culture was like. And these lads in it were all caught up and I still didn't know. Not until mm-hmm. fucking all these years later, the people start coming out with fancy terms like toxic masculinity and mm. lad culture and all this shit we didn't know any of that pitch when we were in it do you know what I mean mm. so we were, we were just in it mm. um, so I'm, I'm going to do that but I also want it to be I want it to be nostalgic I want it to be like the person reading it feels like they've just took an Eki and read a book I, uh, honestly like I've only read one chapter but it was like you really feel like you're you're in going to a club or going to like a big rave like the way it's written it's like oh this, this is fucking like sort of stuff I was doing about four or five years ago you know what I mean yeah right that sounds um, wonderful I, it's, it's amazing I mean it might have changed since then to be mm. honest you might have changed um, how it was written but when I was reading it at the time only like, only slightly it. man mm-hmm. I mean the it's called Where the Fuck Is Phil so the the titular character is is gonna go missing and mm. that's gonna be the hook for the story is mm. basically the rest of the lads are trying to find out what the fuck happened to Phil man mm. and uh, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and along the way I'm trying to tell a wee story about why these lads behave the way they do man that sounds quality man and it also means that once you get that one out for everybody that said oh we've all got one in us you're like well now I've got <laughs> fucking two <laughs> buff you want to plug socials and all that kind of thing if anybody wants to buy you for it recall it's out on paperback and ebook and you can get it on Amazon Waterstones you can get it from my publisher's website Guts Publishing you can google it it's in stores in London Edinburgh and West Slovene and the audio book's coming out very soon who's reading the audio book <laughs> Just reading the audio book. <laughs> no, somebody has to read the audio book. Oh, right. well, read it out. I, I know. Is it you? That's what I, I mean. I, yeah. I narrated it. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire right, life. Man. Can imagine. But we've been doing these things. We didn't really do it today. Called reality takes, where we take stuff off the internet and read it out. But I, I can't fucking read it out loud. Like honestly, I sound like I'm a bit six year old. Like I just, I just stumble my words and shit. I need to get better at it. Man. We'll get better at it as we go, man. And then by yeah, the end, right. you'll be for, you'll be reading the take on reality audio book. You'll be a like truly essential read. Darren Loki McGarvey there you go <laughs> Hanukkah well any socials you want to plug in anything like that uh, just it's at Aiden Author or at Aiden Martin Author for Facebook Instagram Twitter 
man. That's, this has been fantastic. Well, so it, Thank you. That's been really, Thank really you good. Guys. Cool. Cheers. Check um, in the future, man. Yeah, cool. Stop recording. Oh, uh, mate. Aiden, that was class. Oh, mate. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Loads of different twists and turns, different um, topics of conversation in that. I can't wait to uh, listen I, back to it, man. That's what I can, that's that was that, awesome. That's the best yeah, interview I've done. Of, you know what I, I kind of enjoyed was the, um, a lot of the stuff I've been doing recently has been dead serious. Dead mm, fucking yeah, yeah. politics are serious. So we managed to have a bit of fun as well, which was good. Yeah, I think it started quite serious <laughs> and then we kind of it got like a bit more fun as it went on. But I think the, the serious stuff at the start was important because I yeah. think that. that something people need to hear about um, that's the most informative sure. podcast we've ever done if anybody's like oh man I'm struggling a bit I'll be like check out episode 4 of the yeah, Pattern man. Podcast yeah <laughs> right, we'll be out, um, probably in like 4 weeks because we've, we've recorded a few to get so we're not having to constantly do it um, so it's three or 4 weeks till it's out but I'll let you know when it's coming out anyway mm-hmm. let me know and I'll plug it like mad oh, oh, is, man. and we'll get you back on whenever Phil gets found man and then we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll go oh, again absolutely. you want to plug the next book we'll get you back on or even if you just want to come on for a laugh <laughs> Yeah, it's like I'm I'm doing twelve chapters again. That, I'm going to try and make that like my wee signature nice. twelve chapter books. And you know what I've I realised when people read my book is that a lot of people binge read it. And I was I like, read it over the course of like, because see, to be honest, for like, uh, I've had it for like a few months, but like, I just because of the name of the first chapter and like because I know you personally, I was like, I couldn't really bring myself to read it when I when I knew. I well, do you know? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. But then I, I read it all from. I think I started it on like Thursday and finished it today because I just kept putting it off. But fucking amazing book, man! Um, I really, really Thanks, enjoyed man. it. It got uh, had me like laughing and crying and bits, man. Uh, honestly, a fucking great book. You should read it as well. When me and you were in the office, and um, I told you I was pitching this before. Right, and you you asked me to read it at the time, and the reason I never sent you the raw manuscript version was because of chapter one. I thought, man, this is gonna be fucking weird. Yeah, <laughs> I just met you. Though. Yeah, uh, it would have been. Thought, if it doesn't, especially if it doesn't get published, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been hilarious if you hadn't read it, but kidded on you had. So you were coming, you're like, "Would you get chapter one?" And you were like, "Loved it, hilarious. loved it, funny as fuck, mate. I thought it was fantastic." <laughs> <laughs> was that like the story of your book? Ah, no, it was great. Ah, no, it was good. The end was yeah. good as well. Aye, but no, it's it's dark as fuck. But like, really, just fucking heart wrenchingly yeah. honest. I'm taking a home with me, man. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm staying at right. That's my why, like, my my next book I'm doing, I'm, I'm, it's called it's going to be a, a novella. So a novella is like I don't know if you're familiar with that terminology, but Spanish novel. But it's like not quite a. <laughs> it's not oh. quite a novel. <laughs> Spanish. I don't know Spanish, uh-huh. but it's um, it's not long enough to be considered a novel. Right. So I just thought to myself, I'm going to give them something they can binge read again because mm-hmm. people really enjoyed just fucking sitting down and doing nothing but read a book in one go or over two days. And yeah. and this uh, this is a fiction, but I'm hoping to get people greeting and laughing and all the same shit mm-hmm. on this book there yeah it'll give you more freedom to like to do what you like as well basically because <laughs> I mean you were obviously not like you say at the start of the book um, that you don't want to exaggerate anything whereas mm-hmm. in a fiction in fiction you want to exaggerate everything so it'll be great fun to write man I'd imagine mm-hmm. do you know what it yeah. feels like it feels like a bit like stand up and that when you first start you're like so I stay in Paisley and my ma is mental and you just need to kind of like get all that shit out, get all the, the real yeah. stuff out of you and then once you've got it all out and you're like, 
or maybe I can start, maybe I can start fucking about with this and turn it into something that's a bit more, you know, you, yeah. get, you get involved in the craft of it. That feels like a similar process with books. You're like, here's you everything that I actually I think you're right, man. You're right, because someone asked me as well, they said it's a, a weird process for an offer to start with a memoir. Usually an yeah. offer writes fiction and then when they're well known they're like oh here's here's the story of my life mm-hmm. but I've done it the other way around and <clears throat> but I always thought that it is a weird thing when people say oh you could write a book people say that as well like after my my son got ill with cancer in my recovery and he's doing really well now but when I was in the cancer ward with my son and people would visit and we would talk about some of the stuff that had happened they would say like oh man you could write a book and I'm like in my head I'm like I'm gonna <laughs> you give me the idea <laughs> although it wasn't an autobiography I remember it was semi-autobiographical so maybe it'll be yeah. next serving Welsh yeah. that's kind of where the fuck is Phil is kind of like that it's mm-hmm. it's like all the daft stories in there are really fucking things that have happened Yeah. but when I when I create villains that are going to try and kill someone that's exaggerated versions of the truth even mm. the even the villains are based on people that were enemies back in the day I've just made them a bit more that's it authentic, eh? mm. that's it man you know do you remember um, the guys that done the theme tune for Only Fools and Horses Chaz and Dave Aye. yeah so these are this is what I talk about by higher power when I have moments of doubt I, I don't know if it's just because my mind's looking for these things I will see things and they'll speak to me and this article came up um, and one of them had died I don't know which one but one of the guys had died and there was just a quote in the article about how he was so successful and he said exactly that and he says he was successful because he only wrote what he knew Mm-hmm. they done cockney slang and all that and and that's what they knew and they, they just wrote lyrics about what they'd experienced and I thought okay this is another little push telling me I should keep going with this memoir because I am writing about what I know it's my fucking life mm-hmm. and it's the same in the next book it's I know the environment I know the drug scene I can describe stuff in a way where I'm hoping people are going to read that and go they're either going to cringe and go oh fuck I remember that uh, or, or they're going to laugh and go fucking I remember that shit mm-hmm. man and the nostalgia kick I hope as part of the journey for people, man. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. going to just die. You're in the acknowledgements, like, thank you to Chaz and Dave for being my, my data, my, my, my inspiration. Um, how, how random would that be? Yeah. Chaz and Dave. Chaz and Dave would be loving it. Chaz, Dave, and Tiesto. By the way, there's a whole, um, there's a whole fucking chapter dedicated to a Tiesto gig in my new book. I might see him. Is that the one I read, eh? Or was that another one? Yeah, so so I talked about that Tiesto gig that we really went to in my memoir. But in in my new book, I've taken that night and I've turned it into a fictionalised version. Yeah, because when I was reading the the, the book, I was like, I recognise it vaguely from... This the thing the chapter you'd sent me, do you know what I mean? But it was obviously a different uh-huh. version of it. Um, uh-huh. But no, I'm looking forward to that one. It's are you going to get it published with the same people? No, I don't think this is a a guts publishing type book because mm. they're more about real stories and stuff. Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping to get a, maybe a Scottish or 
English publisher, but who there's a lot of Scottish slang in it as well. And mm-hmm. uh, my my publisher is American, and we had such a, a laugh mm-hmm. doing the editing because she would often say to me, we would edit one chapter at a time, and she would send it back with question marks over stuff. And sometimes she'd be like, like when I said I would I'd gubbed pills, she'd be like, what does gubbed mean? What and, is good? Yeah, all these different sayings, and this new book's just got so much of that in it that I don't know if. It would be a nightmare for her. (laughs) I'm going to try and get an agent for this one. I'm going to try and pitch it. I've got a big plan, right? This is like get an agent now after getting all this attention, you know. Especially after being. I think so. This is this is the access to agency podcast. Yes. I've got a, a big plan. I'm gonna I'm gonna approach all the every single trance DJ whose songs mentioned in this new book. I'm gonna approach them with this fucking outlandish idea to do a compilation fucking CD uh, oh, like al- great, album yeah. to go along with the book, man. It, it's, it might go nowhere, but fucking Wait, the last time I felt like that. It's not like trance DJs are like and <laughs> they're peak at the moment. They probably do with the. <laughs> Could probably do with a bit of attention, you know. Yeah, what I mean? you'd be like, that's that's what I was thinking. Move. <laughs> I was thinking that I could help make these fucking songs relevant again, and they could fucking put a compilation album out yeah, as man. part of it. We could do. We're doing a next year. We're going to do a big um, rave in Bathgate, a club envy in Bathgate, and we're going nice. to do. We're going to do it as a promotional tool for the book. I've already got it all sorted out. What? Obviously, COVID fucks off. Mm. Yeah, 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 of course. I'll be coming to that man for sure. Battery. Um, this, by the way, I've just realised this is still recording on the audio, so if we still use some of that stuff, is that alright? Some of that shit as it was happening, of course. I wish we would have left yeah. that on because that's some good stuff. We might, might just plug it at the end as a wee bit of bonus content because it's, it's, I think we're more free, I'm definitely more free flowing now that I don't have any in recording up. And I know, I think it's best because we are still new to this. Mm. And yeah. it's, it's great when you just forget you're recording it. Yeah, um, that's a good system. So Trick uh, ourselves into having see what an comes out, man. authentic yeah. conversation. But I, it's been you were a fucking class guest. Oh, honestly, mate, thank you, mate. Thank Thanks, you man. I had a lot of fun. Fantastic. It was good, didn't it? Good day. Glad just oh, yeah. a bit of a break from talking to fucking MSPs and fuck it. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be back to that soon, man. Last week I was. Um, doing the politics chat and then I was talking to college classes then I was in prisons and I loved every single minute of all of it but sometimes it is nice to also just have a bit of laugh you know what I mean man, that's, that's exactly semi-informative comedy mate that is your fucking forte um, go and buy if you're still listening to this go and buy your recall from uh, your bookstore yeah um, I will call it there because I've got to go deliver fish and chips Aiden that has been fantastic that was amazing mate Thanks, thank guys. you very much right. cheers good luck okay, we'll you catch you soon bye that was Aidan Martin, man. That was a wee bit different to other guests so far, isn't it? It was quite... And that felt like a real interview. Like, that felt like we were actually, like, you know, interviewing somebody because it no did... Not other guests. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Cut that. Start again. Go again. Um, so that was Aidan. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy that? I thought that was fantastic, man. Um, I had a bit of everything, man. A bit of addiction, a bit of book stuff, a bit of wrestling. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I thought you'd like the wrestling chip, man. I was, was going to put that in. I'm 100% going to read the book, man. 100%. Mate, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fucking class. It was unreal. And uh, that felt nice. That felt like it really, it felt, it was open, it was receptive, it was flowing. Mm-hmm. There was no point where we were like, oh God, what are we going to say here? This is, that was great, man. I'm very, I'm proud of that interview. Yeah. I know it's just happening. This is literally blowing your own trumpet like if people are listening <laughs> to this the, this is the post arse blowing <laughs> 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 ah, you were great there mate <laughs> I thought you were fantastic mate <laughs> 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 
God. Uh, no, uh, Aiden, if you're hearing this, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate you opening up to us, man. And I think the next episode's going to be just the two of us again. Um, we'll back taking on some kind of reality. What do you think? We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It'll uh, be the new year. So. Aye, it'll be probably in like late January this, because Aiden's probably coming out second or third week or something. Mm-hmm. This doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it's been take on reality. <laughs> We should do a plug. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, at Potter Pod, P-A-T-T-O-R Pod. There yeah. might be all sorts on there and there might be nothing on there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're gonna have some we're gonna have some fucking interesting shit It's got wait, I can't wait. I now, think, now that we've said that we have to do it. Do so, we need so to do it? A fitness Instagram page, that you is, have to now keep fit. Yeah, once that first post is up, the floodgates will open. We need to work on momentum, but it's that first post. How are you feeling about the first podcast going up? Wait, this will be no good to anybody because mm. that's what will been happening way after. You know what? Fuck it, patch it. You know what? Thank you for listening. We will be back. <laughs> Take care. Yeah.